welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. This is the first of this year's Young Leaders series, The Upside Down Kingdom, Following King Jesus in a Broken World. We are taught this week by Adam Mabry, lead pastor of Alethea Church in Boston, Massachusetts. The message is entitled Missionary God and covers John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now, it's my privilege and joy to introduce to you this morning our, our teacher. Uh, Adam, if you will, make your, way, make your way on up. This is Adam Mabry. Uh, Adam reigns from Boston, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. And my wife and I got to go up there last summer and just absolutely loved it. But Adam will be uh, teaching us this morning. He and his wife, Hope, spent five years with, another, with a team of people planning two churches in Edinburgh, Scotland. And, and, um, and the Lord used him tremendously and, and his family to plant those churches. Then they moved to Boston where they have now planted Alethea uh, Church for the last seven years. Is that correct? Six. Six years. And uh, the Lord's really blessing uh, in using him uh, up there in the Boston area. This morning we were praying for him, and uh, they are just starting this morning a new location, their third location in the city of Boston, or around Boston. I think this one's actually Providence. in Providence. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So Adam uh, has four kids, and uh, let, me, let me read those names because I have four kids as well, and I love... Start to lose track after That's a while. right. You have to read them because you, you can't keep up. Um, Alana, Nora, Cole, and Wyatt. So uh, let me pray for your family, let me pray for you and, and for uh, our time with you this morning. Father, thank you so much for Adam, for, for bringing him here this morning, last night and this morning, to share with us and our congregation. Lord, we pray for him as he um, is your mouthpiece this morning. Would you speak clearly through him? Would you empower him? Would you fill him with your Holy Spirit? And would you use him to speak to our hearts? Would you soften our hearts to receive your word well? Would you open our eyes to see your greatness and your beauty? And we thank you for his family and the ways in which you have used he and his wife, Hope, so faithfully uh, overseas and here in the States. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, brother. Thanks so much. Good morning. That wasn't as good. Good morning. All right. It is a good morning. I, uh, I, I went running this morning, and I forgot exactly how hot it is here. Um, we, I, I come from I come uh, now from from Boston, where we have things like snow, which when you get apparently about a quarter inch of all of I eighty five shuts down for weeks, um, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> it, it's great to be with you. Um, as as was mentioned, uh, I do I do have people. I wanted to introduce them to you just a little bit, so you know uh, I'm not making these people up. These are mine. This is my growing collection of humans, um, and uh, that's my wife up there on the top right. Uh, she is amazing, a graduate of Furman University, just up the road from here. Um, and then we together made all of these people. This is Alana at the bottom left. She is my clone, but in a really cute little girl body. Um, and so she's, she's wonderful. And, and uh, then this is Nora at the top left. She's my 10-year-old uh, piano playing, but also just dramatically into nature girl. This is Cole, he is my taekwondo fighting um, like inner poet. He's this really cool living contradiction. And then this is Wyatt, and Wyatt is a, uh, an undercover operative for Al-Qaeda sent to destroy my house. <laughs> and um, 
Wyatt the Riot. Uh, his, his initials spell the word wham, which wasn't planned, but is in fact the sound he makes most frequently. Um, so yes, he keeps us on our toes and reminds us of the importance of prayer. And then it is only the doctrine of the sovereignty of God which allows us to sleep at night. So yes, we appreciate Wyatt. Um, it, it's great to be with you today. Um, in this teaching series that you're doing uh, for young leaders, um, I, I am still, I think I qualify as young, although my bald head wouldn't, uh, be- betrays my age perhaps. Um, I had hair before I planted a church. I don't know if that's something to pray about. Um, <laughs> we're going to be in the book of John today, so if you have a Bible, you may open it to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. Um, I will read and we will pray. Uh, and we're going to, to ask the Lord to help us this morning uh, understand from the Scriptures, not just interesting teaching. We don't just want to have an informational experience, but this morning as we open God's Word, God promises to send the Holy Spirit to be with us, to illuminate the Word, and to actually give us the capacity to, to, to be changed by it. So we just want information today. We want transformation, right? So let's read God's Word and pray and trust Him to speak to us today. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. But the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We thank you uh, that the promise of the scriptures are that when we open the scriptures, you're gonna come, and so Holy Ghost, come. Use my feeble words. Give us hearts to feel, ears to hear, eyes to see, and faith to believe that you are a God on a mission and that your mission is in fact the very meaning of our lives. Do this for us in the name of your son Jesus, amen. So we live in the middle of a culture that is occupied with an entirely anti-Christ, anti-gospel story. This is a story that began somewhere in the hills of Germany about two or three hundred years ago when a guy named Goethe started writing poetry, and then it made its way into art, and it made its way into more poetry and literature and into music, and it all comes down to us through Europe, through the Enlightenment, through all kinds of interesting philosophical movements right here in 2017, and it is called expressive individualism. Now, you don't need to know what expressive individualism is unless you want to, you know, weird out your friends at the water cooler on Monday morning. 
But, but the idea of expressive individualism is simply this, that you and I are super lucky, quite privileged stardust that happened to, for no reason and unto no cause, coalesce to be you, and that is so unique that if you're really going to make your 60, 70, 80 years on this floating piece of dirt throughout the random universe matter, then you need to reach down into your subconsciousness, down into your desires, down into your own inner life, and pull out of that your meaning, your purpose, and express it. And that, my friends, is the only way to make sense of this other, otherwise senseless universe. And so it comes to us in poetry and in song. You do you is a common confession of this anti-gospel. I gotta be me. Your truth is your truth. YOLO. Come on, where are my young people at? YOLO. Don't pretend like you don't know. You only live once. That is a profession of anti-faith. So we don't believe you only live once. But this this Modern heresy, this anti-gospel, has permeated every part of Western civilization, all of our news media and music, and pretty much everything you see on your Facebook feed and everything that you and I interact with to teach us that unless we are expressing our deepest and most inner desires, then we're not truly living. Small wonder, then, when we hold up the scriptures and we say, hey, the Bible says we should live this way, that whole society that has believed that the only way to get to real fulfillment and happiness is is to express what they want to do, not to submit to what God has called them to do, says that such words are violence against them. Expressive individualism. It's a false gospel with its own creation, fall, redemption, and restoration arc. Creation, you're a lucky piece of stardust. Congratulations. Fall, there are systems of oppression called religion and government and family that want to keep you in a form that is not necessarily you. Redemption. Figure out who you are and be that. Express that. Do that. Live that way. No matter what society says. Restoration. And one day, when we all do that, everything is going to be fine. Makes its way into the church, sells a lot of so-called Christian books, in fact, you could probably buy a few of them at your nearest Christian bookstore. I live in Boston, and we don't have a Christian bookstore. I have to get all my Christian books from Jeff Bezos, which is somewhat ironic. Um, but, but it's a false gospel. And if you believe it, it will send you to hell forever. And if we preach it, it will put a barrier between people that God loves and God's actual love. So what's the antidote? The antidote is to see in the scriptures the story of the mission of God. I have a big mission this morning, which is to so convince you over the next, uh, what do I have, two or three hours? Um, over the next, I'm just playing, I can see the count on clock, we're good. Um, my mission is to so disquiet you with this anti-gospel story that you will see that the mission of God is actually the very meaning of your life. I mean to show that to you in a few ways this morning from the scriptures, that the mission of God is the meaning of God's life, the meaning of created order, the meaning of redemption, and the meaning of your life as well. But you'd think that people like us, people in America, who were so like 
literally hell-bent on discovering who we are, would by now be pretty good at it. We invest a lot of money in it. This year, we spent $17 billion on the self-help, self-discovery industry. Now, just to put that in perspective for you, because when you say a billion, I just, <laughs> does anybody know what spending a billion dollars is like? If you do know, I would love to meet you after the service. Um, <laughs> $17 billion is more money than the gross domestic product of the poorest 70 nations on earth. That's how much we spend trying to make us better us. So you'd think that a nation of people that spent that much time and energy and passion and money investing in themselves would be the pinnacle of like social and moral health, right? Which basically describes America. That's a joke. You can laugh. That, that's, not, <laughs> that's not true at all. No, it, it, that, that's not true at all. In, in the same period of time, uh, over the last uh, 20 years when the self-help industry has taken off, which by the way, it, the rate of this industry is growing faster than the rising cost of healthcare and the rising cost of college tuition, which if you're a parent in the room, you're like, whoa, that's a lot. And it totally shapes how we parent, totally shapes how we parent because we think that the only way to be happy, we've gotten this weird idea lodged in our minds, the only way to be happy is to be the fullest version of yourself. We helicopter parent our children into misery. Do, 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 do. must take kids to all the sports things. Do, 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 do. Must make sure they never experience pain or dissatisfaction because I'd hate for them to understand that the world is the world. Must constantly invest insane amounts of money and time teaching them with my life a gospel I don't preach to them with my mouth. Friends, the mission of God is the meaning of life. It's the meaning of life. Augustine knew it. He said famously in his confessions, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Doesn't restlessness sound a lot like how you feel? This recent Harvard study that was done to suggest that the more time we spend on social media, the more anxious and depressed we become. Which makes total sense because the more you stare at other people's best re you know, highlight reel of their lives, the more you come to believe my life is not that great. I better get to work, I better get younger, faster, stronger, richer, smarter, better looking. Unfortunately, life is not lived with an Instagram filter. The mission of God is the meaning of life. The mission of God is the meaning of life. And I, I shall show you from the scriptures. Here in John, we read at the beginning, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if you are a good Bible student, especially if you're a good Greek-speaking Jewish person in the first century, around the time John would have written this, and you heard the words, in the beginning, what's that remind you of? Genesis 1. It, it's the same in Greek, because if you were a Greek-speaking Jew, you were reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the first three words of John's book and the first three words of Moses' book are the same words, which would make you go, ding, 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 ding. I remember this one in Bible class. Right? Sunday school lessons are coming flooding back. Like, it would have reminded you that, that this sounds an awful lot like the account of the very beginning of all things, as if, as if John were saying, listen, in Jesus, a whole new kind of creation, a recreation is happening. And so it would have taken your mind back to what, what God was doing in the beginning. In the beginning, God made everything. We read in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering or fluttering over the face of the waters of chaos. And then God said, let there be light. And so John is inserting meaning to the very beginning of the world, that this Jesus, whom I'm about to unpack to you for the next 20-some-odd chapters, 
is the word present at the beginning of all creation. Your mind would have gotten caught up to that moment, which is almost incomprehensible to even discuss, prior to creation, when God was happy in himself, needless. And the Father was standing in the face of his Son and the Spirit, filled with white-hot affection for the other, when the Son was pouring out love and affection on the Father. And inside God's Trinitarian unity, God was experiencing a level of joy and happiness that we have yet to taste That God in himself is infinitely and eternally happy. This is the foundation of all Christian happiness to understand that God does not need you, but he wants you. And it's way better to be wanted than needed. The mission of God to experience the glory and fullness and refulgence and majesty of all of his greatness is God's very mission for himself. It animates what he does. It animates everything he does in creation and in redemption and inviting us to follow him. And unless we see that peace, we will miss the rest. The mission of God is the meaning of God's inner life. And so what does that God do? That God, in an act of profound and incalculable grace, creates the cosmos, creates a world, creates a world of worlds wherein creatures are invited to experience the greatest conceivable joy imaginable, namely God's inner joy. So God creates the world. God creates plants and trees and birds and bees and other things that rhyme and sets our parents in this garden sanctuary and invites them to experience life with him. And it was good. God, even the the mission of God was extended into creation. In Genesis 1.28, we're we're reading this account where God basically puts his hand around his son and he's like, all right, all right, boy, do you see what I've just done? Just kind of made a bunch of stuff. Now you go make stuff. My father is a, is a custom home builder, and I, my greatest memories with my dad are when he would put this little toy tool belt on my, on, on, around me and stick me in his truck and take me to work at like three, four, five years old. Now, I ask you, what did I contribute to the industry? <laughs> Annoyance. <laughs> I was in the way a lot, and I demanded a lot of like, you know, juice boxes and <laughs> had a lot of questions, and yet it was my father's joy to take me with them, to experience that. This is what's going on in creation. We're invited on the mission of God to extend and expand the glory and the greatness and the refulgence of who he is into this cosmic cathedral called everything, and what a mission it was. And it was so great that we held on to it for two whole chapters. By the third chapter, our first parents turn their backs on God and sin enters the world, and in a strange lie, they sought to become independent of God, not become atheist, but simply to have God on the side, which should be terribly convicting for many of us, and sought to do their own thing, but in so doing, they actually became enslaved to God's enemy. There's no such thing as true autonomy, I'm afraid. You are either a servant of God or a servant of his enemy, but his enemy is quite happy to let you believe that you're a servant of yourself because it serves him very well for you to believe that lie. And thus, expressive individualism reigns. 
But when we read this text, we're, we're caught back into the beginning, and we're caught back to that moment just after the beginning when everything went quite pear-shaped, everything went quite wrong, and, and sin and brokenness were, were unleashed into the world. And then we read this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. We get these few verses describing John. Now, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He didn't get a book in the Old Testament, but he's a super important guy. In fact, Jesus gave him one heck of a compliment. He said, there's never been anyone born of a woman that's greater than this dude, okay? So he was like the, the pinnacle of the whole prophetic thing, which would, would remind any of John's readers and should remind us of that whole period between creation and Jesus in redemption, redemptive history when God was extending his mission in redemption, now, I don't know what you would have done if your kids nine seconds into creation had ruined everything, but I can tell you what I would have done. It was the same thing I did when I was a kid and I played video games. For those of you that were addicted to Sega or Nintendo, when you got five minutes into a game and it wasn't going well, what button did you press? Reset. Yeah. I would have taken out the big cosmic reset button and go boop, right? I just would have done it over. And God didn't do that. God looked at our first mother, looked at, at his enemy and said, you see this woman whom you tried to destroy, well, your destroyer is going to come through her. The mission of God is the purpose of, of redemption. And, and there, at Genesis 3, God promises to redeem the world. And so we're thinking, if we're just reading the Old Testament for the first time, this is going to go great, because then immediately they start having babies, and so we're like, oh, the seed of the woman is about to take out the snake, it's going to be awesome, and then like a paragraph later, he murders his brother, and we're like, oh, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, oh, oh good, she has another son. It's Seth, maybe that's gonna go well. And then you keep reading, and like by two and a half chapters later, God's so filled with sorrow over creation, sorrow over sin, that he decides to wash the earth in a flood and recreate the whole thing. And he, and he, and he comes to a dude named Noah. Now, I understand that, that Pastor Randy is a remarkable Bible teacher, and I'm kind of geeking out being in your church as a church planter. This is like church plant royalty here, so yeah, just give me, give me like 30 seconds to be like, oh man, this is so cool. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> it's good he's not here, because I'd be like, hey. <laughs> right there, Genesis 6. We, we read that God comes to this dude named Noah. Now, I was taught in my Sunday school class with my very lovely Sunday school, auto harp playing, denim skirt wearing uh, Sunday school teacher that the reason God saved Noah was that Noah was a righteous man. And I guess the moral of that story is be a good person or God will drown you. Um, the only problem with that story is the Bible. That's not why God saved Noah. We read in Genesis 5 that everyone everywhere was only doing evil all the time, which is a really clunky Hebrew phrase to get you to understand everyone was quite bad. But then Noah experienced this thing called favor, which is the same word for grace, and then God calls him righteous, and then God uses him to save the world. Hmm, that sounds like a pattern. Keep that in mind. It doesn't go great, though. To celebrate God's redemptive story, Noah decides to plant a vineyard and get absolutely trashed um, which is not a legitimate way to celebrate a great Sunday, just so you know. Six chapters later, though, we, we bump into Abram. Abram was a 65-year-old 60, dude living in a town called Ur, which sounds like a place in rural Alabama. And, 
and he's ready to pull down on his retirement account. He's got like, you know, a nice riverfront property on the Tigris, you know, just ready to, and he lived in a town where the, the, we know from archaeology, the, they worshipped a moon goddess named Sin, which I find ironic. And God just shows up to this guy and he's like, hey, come follow me and I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless everybody through you. And Abram's part of that was going, okay, and then he did. But we know Abram messed it up numerous times, but through his children we, we get the people of Israel, and the people of Israel were, were quite a mess themselves. What we see over and over again is that God comes to broken, very normal, in some ways remarkable, but in other ways spectacularly shattered people, and involves them in his plan, involves them in his mission to save the world, because the mission of God is the meaning of life, and God is so so preoccupied with getting us to experience his glory and his goodness that he is willing to work with people like me to do it. People like Abram and people like y'all. I'm in the South, I can say y'all. When I use y'all in Boston, people are like, no, it's yous. And I'm like, it's not. It's not. Uh, I have to teach them. You can pray for us. We also have no Chick-fil-A in Boston. It's a very terrible place to do ministry. <laughs> That's how I'll know that the kingdom has come, though. Um. <laughs> the holy chicken has arrived. It's working. Keep preaching. <laughs> all through redemptive history, all through the kings, all through the prophets, God is preoccupied with getting his people to understand that the the highest goal, the highest way of existence, the, the reason we were made is for God, and God is on a mission for us to understand that and to extend the good news of what he's done into the world, to invite other people into that Trinitarian love that was lost at creation but will be regained at new creation. And every time we believe the false story that we're here to get our best life now, then what we say with our lives and our money and our mouth and our bodies is that we don't believe there's eternal life then, so get it as good as you can now, and it will send everyone who believes that not into God's loving presence. And it makes our gospel look very, very weak. There are people willing to die for lesser things. And we're barely willing to live for this. The true light which was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own people didn't receive him. Jesus came. So so God himself ends up coming. He is the pinnacle of all prophetic unction. He is the one that all of these biblical heroes point to. God himself shows up, born to an unwed teenage girl in the backwater town outside of the capital of Israel. Lives a perfect human life, dies in our place for our sins, rises again, defeating Satan, sin, death, demons, hell, and the grave, inviting his disciples to go and experience his inner life and share it with the world. He says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything, I've t- teaching them this gospel, the story of what I've done, my mission to redeem you, teach everybody. And for 2,000 years, it's what the church has been doing, not perfectly. There have been some moments where it's not gone great. But the mission of God to extend an invitation into his glorious presence through the proclamation of his glorious gospel, this is the meaning of life, my friends. And if we don't live it, then no one will believe it. I bring you greetings from the wasteland of what used to be Christendom. Let me tell you what happens to me as a Christian in Boston. Nothing good. The first time I told someone that I was a pastor 
to a PhD student at Harvard. She looked at me and she went, oh, that's adorable. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. And it's hurtling toward you at the speed of life. You will get no brownie points in the next 20 or 30 years telling people that you love Jesus. In fact, you will get a look like you. It's you people who keep people oppressed, keep people down, keep people squelched, keep people squished, because it's our gospel that is the anti-gospel to this false gospel of expressive individualism. And so my question to you this morning is which gospel do you believe and which one do you proclaim with your life? Because I'm here to tell you that the mission of God is the meaning of life, which means you and I have a choice. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Because of Jesus, we understand that the mission, the purpose, the reason of our lives is not merely to wander around in our own subconscious and find the weirdest part of ourselves and then bring that out with a day and a flag and a Facebook page. But if this isn't true, then that's all we've got. And oh, how we love to baptize the language of expressive individualism into our church. Sadly, there are great so-called churches that make great deals of money deceiving people with this. Shall you be among them? Shall your neighbors? Shall I? The mission of God is the meaning of life. And so my invitation to you first this morning, for those of you who aren't yet followers of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. This is a remarkable church. You are sitting in the middle of a miracle. You don't know it, but you are. Your pastors and your elders and your team are amazing. And there are people here who are just utterly dedicated to the mission of God for your city, for your town, and for you. And I cannot encourage you enough. If you're here and you're just peeking over the fence at Christianity, come find one of the leaders in this church and say, how do I do this thing? How do, how, do I, how do I get in on this? Because I have tried living that expressive individualistic thing and it fails. And it will fail you, my friends, because it will damn you if you don't get to where you want to be and it will damn you if you do. If you never arrive at really expressing yourself, then you'll always wonder, who am I? Am I really being the best version of myself? And if you finally arrive and you finally get the body and you finally get the girl and you finally get the money and you finally get the power, you'll finally realize that this is a poor heaven glossy brochure has led me nowhere closer to God. And if you as a, someone who's interested in Christianity is interested in differenti differentiating yourself from that story, you're in a great place to begin that journey. And for some of you who are followers of Jesus, but perhaps you've just gotten distracted, right? You've gotten on the rabbit wheel of maybe I, I need to, you know, be a better version of myself. This false gospel says get to work, but the true gospel says it is finished. This false gospel says, proclaim your greatest highlight reels to the world. But the true gospel says, no, go and tell the world about Jesus. This false gospel says, be perplexed with anxiety as if you see others who are doing this better than you. But Jesus says, rejoice with those who rejoice. When one of you wins, we all win. So which one are you going to believe? My great prayer for you, my friends that you would differentiate from this story that has shipwrecked our country and the Western world, and in so doing, become the embodiment of the hope of our country and the Western world as you live out faithfulness to the gospel. 
Father, thank you for these men and women. I bless them in Jesus' name, and I ask that you would uh, work miraculously in this moment, that you would soften hard hearts, that you would open deaf ears, that you would cause us to even reflect on those questions in the bulletin as we drive away today. What's standing in our way? What needs to move so that we're all in for you? What lesser joy have we become so enraptured by that we're willing to sacrifice your presence for your stuff? Lord, I thank you for this house, and I thank you that its greatest days are ahead of it. And I bless the men and women here, and I ask that they would be the embodiment of the mission of God as the meaning of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me share with you today. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.